We are in, I think, week four of this campaign that we started called Resilient Christianity. We're going through the book of 1 Peter, and the theme of the book of 1 Peter is developing resilience as Christians. Okay. So our culture, as I've been describing week after week, is what's been called a post-Christian culture, uh, meaning that a lot of the basic assumptions that are just kind of in the air we breathe of our culture are no longer rooted in Christianity. Uh, the moral values that we have, the ways that we live our life, the truths that are just generally pervasive in the culture are becoming less and less frequently rooted in Christianity and Christian ideas. And so we have to discern how to live now as Christians in this new culture. And for many of us, the shift has been pretty abrupt, where we changed from these Christian values kind of predominating the culture to all of a sudden they're not. And now we're like, ah, what do we do? And it feels like a, a knee-jerk reaction both ways, right? And so now we react the other way and often act in ways that aren't Christian. So the good news is that much of the New Testament, all of the New Testament, was written in a non-Christian culture as well. So as we progress into this post-Christian culture, it should start to look and feel a little bit more like what we read about in the New Testament, and that's okay. And so we are trying to discern how to build resilience as this shift is happening. How do we as Christians build resilience? So I keep saying, again, like the weather around here, my goodness. Like last week, the last two weeks, I think it was like negative temperatures and now it's like raining. What on earth? We have to be resilient to live in Wisconsin. We must also be <laughs> resilient in our faith as well. Take that weather resilience and apply it to our Christian faith. Again, because it's not always going to be as easy in our culture to be Christians, and we should not expect it to be. It actually isn't right now, but we often feel too comfortable here. And so we view it as easy when it really probably shouldn't be. So in the first few weeks, we've talked about how believers are elect exiles in relationship with God, how God has caused us to be born again into this new uh, covenant relationship with him, and he's... Because of that, we now have a living hope. We have an inheritance that is eternally secure in him. And we have a hope in Jesus when he returns. And we're guarded for salvation in Christ. And he praises God and begins with that theology. So what we're wrapping up with today is the theology portion of the opening of his letter. And then in a couple weeks when we come back, we will be diving into the practical application. So this is how many of the letters in the New Testament are written. Theology at the, at the beginning, that roots, or that's like the basis for how we ought to live. And then it transitions into, now here's what you do in light of that theology. Okay, so we're wrapping up the theology part today. Uh, I should say as well, last week we talked about how uh, he kind of got into some specifics about how because we're born again, born new into the family of God, now we should live in holiness, that we should set our hope fully on Christ and his return, that uh, we should love one another genuinely, uh, those types of things, right? And now, um, yeah, we're going to wrap up the, portion, the theology portion. And again, the main theme of this whole section of 1-3 all the way here through 2-10 is that uh, we are the people of God, the church. The church is the people of God. Here he's going to state it pretty specifically, and that's going to be our main point today. So let's read it all, and then I'll walk through it with you and unpack it. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right. Every time I read through it, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine reading that for the first time like here. <laughs> I've been reading it the whole week and unpacking it and processing it. And you guys are like, Boof. wow. All right. So we'll take our time and just walk through it together. All right. So the big idea of this passage, the whole section is really right here in verse five, where he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Okay. So he's changed his metaphors here. Uh, he has been talking about the parent-child relationship, that we're children. God has brought us into his family. Uh, God is now our father. We are obedient children. Now he switches metaphors to a building. Okay, So the church is to be viewed as a building, is now what he's talking about. That believers in Christ are like living stones, meaning that we're alive in Christ, right? Eternally alive in Christ. And we're being built. Note the passive there. Uh, the church is being built. That, like, we don't build the church in and of ourselves. God builds the church, okay, is the point. God will do this. <clears throat> Often in Scripture where there's passive and there's not an exact reference to it, it's divine passive. It's referring to God, right? You guys are like grammar. Grammar, I graduated from grammar school. I don't need more of it. Sorry. <laughs> it's important. <laughs> right. Being built up as this spiritual house. So he's referring to the temple, uh, that's the analogy, is like the, uh, the Jewish temple, the second temple uh, Herod built, and it's massive, right? It's a massive temple. So the people that he's writing to have this image of this big, beautiful temple with stones that make it up. So we have, like, the walls here. We can look at the bricks, right? We'll apply that later. Um, that's a good illustration of it. To be a holy priesthood. So now we are a holy priesthood, meaning we are called to worship, which he explains Next, right, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the church is now, is this people of God, using this building metaphor that God is building up, and we are to worship because we're priests. How are we in this building? Well, you come to him as you come to him. What a great just picture of the Christian life is just going to Jesus. Love it. Like, when you first believe in Jesus, you just believe that he is who he says he is, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again. And the life after is just keep returning to Jesus. Right? You have questions about how to live, go to Jesus. You have questions about what is true, what does Jesus say? Just keep returning to Jesus. That is, uh, oh, okay, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll keep the grammar to a minimum, but we'll leave it at that, all right? Whew. A living stone, he says. He's already said that uh, in Christ we have this living hope because Jesus is living forever. So now Jesus is the living stone 
eternally alive, right? Who is rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. One of the key themes to see today is the contrasting ideas of like, not this, but this, right? So Jesus was a living stone. He was rejected by men, right? He was hung on a cross. Uh, his people rejected him as the Messiah. But in the, God, in the sight of God, he was chosen and precious. So again, his audience that Peter's writing to has been exiled, likely from Rome to Asia Minor and all these distant regions of the Roman Empire. And they're tempted to believe that because of this exile, that God might be against them, right? Peter's like, no, like you guys are rejected by your society, uh, your home. When you believe in Jesus, you're rejected by your family. It's like that doesn't necessarily mean that God has rejected you because Jesus experienced the same thing, but he was chosen and precious by God. So he's already said that believers are chosen by God. Now Jesus is chosen by God, he says. Okay, so that is our big idea as the people of God, the church is to worship. We're to worship. We're set apart by God to be the people of God in this building that God has made, to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices is to worship. We'll apply it later when I come back up. Four, now he's going to support the idea and then he's going to return to it later. Okay, so we'll go through the support pretty quickly and then move to uh, focus more on at the end when he kind of returns to this big idea. For it stands in Scripture, he's going to quote tons of Scripture. Basically, the rest of what he says is all based on the Old Testament Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He's quoting Isaiah 28, 16, where Isaiah is saying that God is going to do something special among his people to give them this sure foundation, even as they're about to go into exile. Right? So God is about to bring punishment because they had uh, wandered away from the covenant relation, uh, obedience to the covenant that God had established with them. And so they were going to go into exile. The nation of Assyria was going to come in and take over them pretty soon. But uh, Isaiah is prophesying and saying that God will do something that will establish you forever. And Peter is linking that to Jesus. He's saying Jesus is what God has done. Jesus is the cornerstone that God has done to uh, establish his people forever. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the people of Israel at this time, they were trusting not in God for their deliverance. They had made an alliance with Egypt. Uh, so they were trusting in that, that they would not be put to shame. And put to shame here is like taken over and exiled and put in captivity. And the people who Peter's writing to so I'm just trying to make these connections with you, right? The people who, Peter's, who Peter is writing to, they were facing cultural pressures from their Roman culture in order to shame them into uh, living in the Roman customs, accepting the Roman gods, living the Roman ways. And what Peter is saying here is, similarly, you will not be put to shame if you build your life on the cornerstone of Christ. Instead, you'll have honor, right? So the honor is for you who believe. So you'll be honored by God if you remain faithful to the way of Jesus in the midst of these cultural pressures and tensions and continue to trust in him or continue to believe in him. But now, remember the compare and contrast that he's doing? Oh, and just to be clear, I mean, you guys probably all know we're singing Cornerstone later, right? It's... 
we're in the cornerstone text. We got to sing the cornerstone song. <laughs> All right. So now he's comparing and contrasting again. So those who believe, honor. But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Okay, so Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus uh, even uses this for himself in Mark 12, 10. And it's a reference to Psalm 118, 22. So those who reject Jesus, like he is still the cornerstone. You can reject him or not. But if you don't believe in him, then he becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, is what Peter's saying by quoting Isaiah 8, 14. He says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So I'll go through that line more in the devotional. I don't have time to cover all of it now, but in the devotional, I'll go through it a little bit and the different ways you can interpret that passage. But um, for now, just suffice it to say that Peter's emphasis has been like, uh, he calls them elect exiles, right? He calls Jesus chosen by God, even though he was rejected by men. His emphasis again and again and again is to say, like, this is all according to plan, you guys. Like, God is sovereign. God's got this. Like, you guys are in exile. You don't know where your inheritance is. You guys don't know, like, where your money's going to come from. You don't know if you're going to be persecuted, killed, put in prison. Uh, if you ever be able to return home, God's got this, okay? God is sovereign. Talk about rebuilding a resilient faith. Imagine being in that life situation and having to remain resilient and cling to your faith in the midst of that. Again, I keep saying this all the time, but our Christianity, because we've grown up in a Christian culture, is pretty soft, right? That we face any sort of cultural pressure or tension, and we're like, oh my gosh, and we freak out, right? Like, these guys were exiled. They lost their economic stability, their home, their family likely rejected them. And Peter's calling them to stay true to the way of Jesus to build their life on the cornerstone of the church, which is Jesus. And God's got this. He's just reminding them that God's got this. Okay, but you, he says, talking to the church of Asia Minor, uh, Christians who have been dispersed throughout this region, both Jews and Gentiles, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, he says. These are all terms that refer to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Now Peter is applying them to the church, to those who believe in Jesus. Chosen race, language. Uh, so I'm just going to say that all of them are from either the exile or the exodus. And there's a re reason Peter goes to those two, because those are two of the greatest like, displays of God's great power and deliverance. Okay, the Exodus, they were enslaved and God has delivered them, ransomed them out of slavery to enter into covenant relationship with him. And then in the exile, they were sent out from punishment, but God brings them back from the exile and delivers them again. So he says, you are a chosen race. The term chosen race, it refers to usually descendant from a particular lineage or like a group of people. For the people of Israel, it meant being a descendant from Abraham. But now it's changed in the church, right? That us being a part of the people of God is no longer based on our ability to trace our lineage back to Abraham. And now, even in the Old Testament, there were ways for somebody to become Jewish and be brought into the people of God if they weren't, if they weren't, uh, if they couldn't trace their lineage back to Abraham. But it wasn't, it wasn't super common. Now, it's through faith in Jesus. 
And so we are a chosen race, not based on our lineage, uh, but based on our belief in Jesus and whether or not we come to believe in Jesus and we come to him. And so what this means is the church is multi-ethnic, which means that the church is diverse and we should celebrate that. There are multiple people of every tongue, tribe, and nation are part of the people of God. And that's a beautiful thing. Next, a royal priesthood. This is from Exodus 19. Again, um, he's already called the believers a royal priest or a holy priesthood. So he's re- referencing this again. again so this means uh, the, so the Reformation kind of brought back this idea of the priesthood of all believers. Uh, because in uh, temple models of worship, pagan worship, and the church is constantly prone to going back to this idea, which it did for uh, hundreds of years after Jesus until the Reformation again. This idea of the, the priesthood of all believers was restored through the Reformation, that we don't need a select group of people in the religious community to go through in order to get to God, okay? Like, this is huge. When you look at religions through this perspective, you see it in, like, every other religion, that there's a select group of people who are the gatekeepers who you have to go through in order to get to God. This is why Christianity is so beautiful. Peter's writing this to just everyday Christians who have been exiled to remote regions of the Roman Empire. And he's like, you are a priest, meaning you have access to God. At church, you don't even, like, you don't even have to be in a specific space to have access to God, Right? Because you're the priesthood. Okay, because the building of the church is us. It's a living. We're living stones. So we can have access to God on Wednesday morning, on Friday night, just as we can here on Sunday morning. And we can experience his presence because we are the royal priesthood. It's not to say that this isn't important, that when we gather together, we're not, we're not experiencing the presence of God together. This is super important, a great way that we do. But you don't have to go through some religious gatekeepers, some priests. You're a priest. You can experience the presence of God now. That's a beautiful truth of the faith. This also means that as a royal priesthood, we are called to represent God and a holy nation. Same, same idea. Uh, we're called to be set apart, that God has set us apart, the church, uh, to be his people. And so we are to live a holy life and so make God look great. We're to be God's representatives on earth. We are to be a city on a hill, the light of the world. We're to make God look awesome. That's why we are a holy nation. And then he says a people for his own possession. Okay, just, just, just read those words carefully, right? Just look at them. They mean what they mean, right? This is from, and it's not just a New Testament idea. It's from Exodus 19, Isaiah 43, as we've been saying, both the Exodus and the exile. Uh, bring these up, and here Peter says the same thing to the church. Um, we are to be a people for God's own possession. So remember, in week two, we talked about the ransom language, how we are ransomed from our former life of ignorance in the way of sin and self, uh, and, and to enter into covenant relationship with God. So in the Exodus, God ransoms them from Egypt, and then soon after, they end up at Mount Sinai, and they enter into covenant relationship with him, and that's where he says this. Uh, you are a people for my own possession. So there is no sense in the Christian life in which 
we are free to then be fully self-determined. Right? Again, he says it again. We belong to God. Right? So you either belong to your sin and death or you belong to God. Those are your options. Right? It's not, it's not a, I'm totally free to do whatever I want. It doesn't exist. <clears throat> we are God's prized possession. And in our, I'm going to talk about this later, but like in our individualistic culture, <clears throat> like we kind of don't like that. We're like, ugh, I kind of want to be me and do what I want to do. <laughs> and, but this is a great comfort, okay, especially for people in this culture. Like, like you have a people to belong to. You have a God to belong to. That you're God's. And so now you have the safety, the peace, the security, the comfort of knowing that he's got you that he has saved you and he will guard you for that inheritance that will be revealed in the end. So we should view this as a good thing, that we get to belong to God. And we'll talk about our reasons for why we don't as I come back up and apply it. Um, okay. So living in this identity primarily, it caused a lot of tension for them with the culture around them, uh, with their government, uh, Caesar, he claimed to be God and Lord. So next, Peter's going to go into how you should relate to the government specifically. Uh, we'll cover that in a couple weeks. Caesar claimed to be God and Lord. Uh, and the Christians are like, no, nah, that's Jesus. <laughs> right? And so uh, when they would be arrested and brought before the tribunal, <clears throat> they would ask them to declare Caesar as Lord. And some Christians would cave. Some uh, would say, no, Jesus is Lord. And what Peter's doing is trying to encourage them to say, no, like, hold to the truth. Jesus is Lord above Caesar. So don't cave. And if they would say Jesus is Lord, then they would be put in prison, they'd be beaten, or even martyred eventually for saying that. Their economic life would clash with the culture. I reference in uh, Acts 19, where in the devotional, where that is the case. Uh, many people couldn't do what they did before working for uh, a temple, or if you work for the Roman army, which was connected to the cult of the Roman gods, then you couldn't work in the Roman army anymore, right? Because they mandated worship of the Roman gods. Their family life, I already said they were disowned. They lost their inheritance. So because of this new identity, it clashed with the culture of Rome. What's the reason? For why we are <clears throat> brought into this new identity, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Oh, what a beautiful phrase of worship. Just proclaiming the excellencies of God. This is what we do when we sing. This is why we sing so much. Proclaiming the excellencies of God, who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Excellencies is a weird word. <laughs> Use that very much. Uh, it can be used both as like the virtue or character of a person and their heroic deeds. I think it's both in this instance. As God's virtue and character is what leads him to deliver and save and redeem. And so we are just worshiping God for who he is and what he has done in salvation. That he has called us out of this former life of darkness into the marvelous light of living for him. As a people for his own possession, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation... These are good things. Marvelous means to cause wonder or amazement. We should never lose our wonder or amazement at what God has done. 
and how glorious it is to live in the light of Christ. Band, you guys can come and get set up here. Finally, he's quoting another verse. He's quoted verses the last, the whole thing. So he's quoting Hosea here. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the new part that he adds to this idea is simply that we are brought into the people of God simply by the mercy of God. We had not received mercy before, but now we have received God's mercy. That he has been merciful in adopting us, bringing us into his family, making us into this new building these living stones into the building of Christ, or into the building of the church. So let's pray. Then we're going to take communion, and then we'll worship. Lord, God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for these promises, for what you are doing, for what you have done, for who you are. That, Lord, in your mercy, in your grace, in your compassion, in your kindness, in your love for us, you have brought us into your family. You have adopted us to be a people for your own possession. That we have the safety, the security, the hope, the longing, the inheritance in you now. And that is secure because you are securing it. So Lord, help us to just declare. (laughs) Declare the excellencies of God who has brought us out of darkness and into his glorious light. And we do so through worship as your people. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, our big idea is ridiculously simple and obvious, right? Duh. Um, as the people of God, the church is to worship God. We're called to worship God, okay? But there's two important components here that we're going to unpack in a few more statements. One is that we are the people of God that we have to view ourselves as such, as the people of God, as our primary foundational identity in the people of God. And then we have to be worshipers of God. If we are to develop resiliency and be a resilient Christian in a post-Christian culture, we have to hold these things. We have to know that we are the people of God. And we have to know how to worship God. These are some of the core foundations of it. Without it, we just will not be resilient and we will cave to cultural pressures all around us. All right, first, think of yourself as a part of the whole. This is one of the most important spiritual, formational uh, aspects of discipleship today for the church is to view ourselves as belonging to one another. talked a lot about us as belonging to God. That's important too. But in our culture of individualism and freedom, we value those so highly. This is hard for us. This is hard for us to get. To view ourselves as a part of a whole. That your community contributes to your identity, as we say a lot. And I brought this rock. Like The the brick was sitting over there. And I was like, oh yeah, it's perfect. Um, This is how we ought to view ourselves as one of these in that wall, okay? (laughs) It's great that we have a brick building for whenever I preach this sermon. (laughs) So if you look at the wall, like you're a brick in that wall, and that's how you should perceive of yourself, that the bricks around you support your structure, right? And without bricks, the structural integrity of the wall is compromised, and that's you, You're part of this. You're part of the structural integrity of the church. This 
local community, the church everywhere who believes in Jesus, and the church for all time, everyone who has always believed in Jesus. God has built his church into a temple. And you're a part of it. You're a brick in it. So we have to perceive ourselves not as an individual alone on an island as our culture pressures us to do. Pressures us to conform to that ideology all the time. And instead, and when we do conform to that ideology, it leads to disastrous consequences for our life. It leads to us wanting to get our way over and against the other person next to you. It leads to us, it leads to the opposite of love. Not being willing to sacrifice and give up some of our rights and privileges for the benefit of another around us. Instead, we must view ourselves as a part of the whole and be willing to do that. Because community contributes to our identity. Actually, when we first opened the church, I think, yeah, I... I didn't ask anybody to confirm this. I should have, because my memory is terrible. Uh, but when we first opened the church and we have all these bricks on the wall, we had a bunch of extra bricks around. Uh, and we gathered together to pray one night. And we set the bricks out and just said, if you want to take one home with you as a constant reminder of this. Because you are a part of the church and you have to view yourself as such. So when one part of the church hurts, when one part of the church is compromised, we all do. We view ourselves as a part of a whole, and we need one another. And as this building, as a brick in this building, Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. Jesus is the most important piece. The cornerstone is that big rock at the corner of the foundation. Uh, That's likely the image that Peter has in mind here. It's the most important piece. If that falls, the whole building falls. Uh, The good news is of the gospel that Jesus is our cornerstone, that he is the foundation of the church, and therefore he is the foundation of all of our life. This means that we must be fully dependent upon Christ. This means that we have to abide in him to do anything in ministry. This means that in order to accomplish the work of Christ, right, we must follow the way of Christ and be in Christ. That we're not justified in going outside of the way of Christ, in loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you in order to build the church of Christ, which is also probably a misnomer. Because remember, Peter says that uh, we are being built up, so God is the one who is building the church. We are just part of it, and we do what God calls us to, right? So we must view Christ as the cornerstone and continue to abide in him and lean on him and trust in him for everything. So when we have questions about how do I, what should I do, in this scenario. Go to Christ. Remember, Peter starts this verse 4, as you come to him. Keep going to Christ. Go to Christ. You don't know how to handle your finances, what investments to make. Go to Christ. Pray. Seek his wisdom. Seek his guidance and his leading. Somebody in the church offends you. Go to Christ. How do I respond? What should I do? Go to Christ. What does Christ say? When we have questions, big decisions in life, relational tensions in our families, go to Jesus. He is the cornerstone of your life. He is the cornerstone of the church. He is the foundational piece. Everything must be built on him. This also means that as believers, uh, 
Jesus is the cornerstone of the church, not a prominent pastor or a leader. Okay, this has been a big topic the last few years as very prominent, high-profile Christian leaders have fallen, whether it's morally or in other ways, right? Um, and when that often happens, those who had grown up in that church, who had been uh, come to faith in that church or at the, uh, under the teaching of that leader, when that leader falls, they're left in shambles. And that's often because they've built their life and church, the church, so this isn't just the fault of the individuals, it's the fault of the church and the structure of the church as well. Uh, they've built their entire foundation on the leader, not Jesus. It's a huge problem. And I know I'm implicating myself here too. And that's the goal of this church, okay? <laughs> is This church is not built on me. It's not built on any one leader here. It's built on Jesus. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation. And he is the one who is going to build and preserve and establish his church. And so if we have that perspective, when leaders fall, when leaders fail, our faith won't be totally shaken. And we can still remain faithful to Christ because he is the only righteous one. He is the author, the perfecter of our faith. And so we must view our faith as rooted, grounded. I keep using these different metaphors. Built upon the cornerstone of Jesus. Peter gave us a metaphor. Use it. All right. <laughs> It's built on Jesus. He's the cornerstone. Again, Jesus is the cornerstone. This is not in question. Uh, you can build your life on him or you can stumble over him, as Peter's saying. So you can either choose to believe in him or don't. Uh, if you don't, you're going to stumble over him, and he's become the stumbling block or the rock of offense. This isn't, this isn't up for debate whether Jesus is the cornerstone or not. That's not the question. The question is, what's your response to him? Like, Will you build your life on the true cornerstone and fully establish yourself? and be a part of the church that has built its life on Christ? Uh, or will you stumble over him? We do this by believing in Jesus and trusting in him for everything, as we've talked about. That he is our Lord, and we have fully surrendered everything to him. I haven't quoted C.S. Lewis in a while, so I thought I would. Uh, his, famous, <laughs> his famous liar, lunatic Lord uh, line is right here, mere Christianity. Um, those are the only three options that we have with Jesus, is what he's saying. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Okay, the things Jesus said were so dramatic. Like, you can't just say, yeah, he's a good teacher, so I'm going to take some of his teachings and then some of mine or some from Buddhism or some from this other religion and build my life as this tapestry that I've just put together with myself as the authority. Not an option, right? Uh, the things Jesus said were so wild, so dramatic, that he's either God or he's a lunatic or he's simply a liar. And I don't think many of us are willing to say that he's a liar or a lunatic. And so that leaves you with one option, right? He's Lord of everything. And so surrender everything to him because you are a people for his possession, right? Jesus said things like, I am the resurrection and the life. He said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's either the most arrogant person in the history of the world, or he's, it's true, right? He even said before Abraham was, I am. He called himself God, right? In one instance where a man, uh, a paralyzed man, is brought to him, 
And Jesus, he says, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> and the Pharisees and teachers of the law are like, only God can do that. And, right. <laughs> That's Jesus' point, right? That he's God, and so he has the power to forgive sins, he says. I said this, so the son of, you know the Son of Man has the power to forgive sin. And then he heals him anyways, right? So there's no other option with Jesus. He's either the cornerstone that you're building your life on, or you're tripping over him, or he's an offense to you. That's it for him. So believe in him, trust in him, and build your life on the foundation of what God has done in Christ. Next, your primary identity is now as the people of God. So that must be our primary identity. We have a lot of other places that we root our identity and put them in, and that's normal. It's part of existing as a human being, right? Our nationality, our ethnicity, our social identity, our economic status, marital status, parental status, all those things are part of who we are. They make up our identity. They're important, but they cannot be the foundation of it, right? They cannot be the foundation of your identity. Only Christ must hold that place. Because remember, the culture will put you into situations, will pressure you, cause tension between these identities. Right? And you must decide. Will I be grounded? Will I build my life on Jesus? Or as my foundational identity or something else? We make these decisions all the time, subtly. And this is why worship is so important, that the more we worship, the more these idols or false identities come out, and then we can root ourselves more in Jesus. Remember, these things come out in your economic life, in your family life. All of these. Family life is a big one. Um, and obviously, if we're honoring God and living in this identity, he will call us to love and care for our families, right? So... That's what results. But our families cannot be the cornerstone of our life. Jesus said things like, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Am I speaking hyperbolically there? Because again, like, if you're following Jesus, you're, you will love them and care for them. Um, but Jesus must be first. I love and care for my kids and for my wife desperately. Right. But the most important thing for my kids especially is to know that they are not the center of the universe. They are not the center of my universe either. They're an important part of it, but only Jesus holds that place. right? And it is not good for their growth and spiritual formation and development to think that they are the center of my world. Only Jesus must hold that place. So the best thing that I can do as a parent for my kids is to love Jesus and live in that identity first. Next, you've been brought into the people of God to declare his excellencies. <laughs> as a church, we must worship. We must learn to worship. Declaring the excellencies of God is kind of an awkward thing <laughs> for a lot of us. This is why we sing so much in part. As to experience declaring God's excellencies for calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light together as a church community, as the people of God who have experienced this, and it's a great experience. 
It's also to like give you language and teach you how to do this because it's awkward, I get it. Uh, but you have to get good at this. If you want to be resilient, you have to learn to worship. Not just here at church with the language and words that I provided for you, but take those and practice in your prayer life and learn how to pray, worship to God. Learn how to declare his excellencies. Tell him who he is, how awesome he is. And then tell him, thank you for all that you have done in saving me. Thank you for all that you have done in, in removing the effects of sin from my soul, in producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness in me. Thank you, God, for all that you have done for me. We have to learn to declare his excellencies and to worship and praise him for who he is and what he has done. That will ground us and root us in a resilient faith. Let's pray, and then we will declare his excellencies together. Lord, you are so good. You are so great. You are holy. You are fully beyond us, beyond compare, and yet you have come so near to us in Christ. You have showed us who God is. We thank you for your love, for your compassion, for your mercy, and that you have saved us, not due to any work of our own or any specialness of our own, but just because you chose to show mercy and grace and love to us. We thank you for your justice, that, Lord, you are perfectly just, that you are righteous, that you are holy, and there is nobody that compares to you. And so, Lord, we know that justice will be served one day, that all evil will be vanquished, but Lord, in your mercy, you have chosen to save your people and to bring us into your family. So we thank you for that, God, and we rejoice by just declaring your excellencies together. In Jesus' name, amen.